Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. Zoom calls, Google Docs, Slack meetings. With each passing year, we're finding ever more efficient ways to squeeze more work out of each hour of every day. So if, as the old saying goes, time is money, we should be rolling in dough at this point. But that's not the feeling most of us have. Instead, the sense of overwork and burnout only seems to be growing. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Manconi. Even with all the life hacks and productivity boosts in the world, a lot of us simply feel like we're falling further and further behind in the race of life. Today's guest, though, is asking the question, whose idea was it to make this into a race in the first place? And who's actually profiting from all this rushing around? That guest is Jenny O'Dell, an Oakland-based artist and the author of the new book, Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. Jenny O'Dell, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So listeners may remember you for your last book, which came out in 2019, called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, in which you traced out something of an escape plan from the uh, busy trap that so many of us have found ourselves in. Uh, You know, it's the trap of constant work, constant screen time. You gave advice on how we can crawl out, slow down, and re-engage with the world of the here and now. Uh, That book really seemed to hit a nerve. Um, uh, I think it was tapping into this broad feeling that something is not quite right about how we're all spending our attention. Uh, Now, this new book of yours, Saving Time, uh, I think taps into a similar feeling uh, that, again, there's just something not quite right. Uh, This time, though, It's about the demands that are being put on our time, whether those demands are coming from our boss, our family members, uh, or quite often from ourselves. Uh, So let's start with this question. Where do you think we've gone wrong in how we think about time? Oh, that's 
It's a bit of a hard question because it depends on, you could go really, really far back. Um, I think there is, um, I guess for me, an important, an important maybe point in time would have been just the idea of um, being able to buy the labor hours of someone else. So that's something that's like very, you know, familiar to us now, right? Like you, you work to make a living, you work for a wage or for a salary. Um, but I think there was, you know, definitely a moment when you started to see, for example, um, ideas developing in Europe about, uh, regular work being and regular work hours that could be purchased by, you know, someone who is running, say like a factory or something like that. Um, just someone who would have an incentive, right. To buy the hours of someone else and try to get as much work as they could out of them. Um, and I think one, for me, one really easy way to sort of defamiliarize that concept is to look at the moment when that idea about time and work was exported to colonies. Um, that's kind of an important uh, point in my book to to visit because you see two understandings of time kind of clash, right? Like one sense of time is very attuned to things that are happening seasonally, things that are happening in a sort of concrete physical sense, um, processes that are unfolding. Um, anyone, you know, now who gardens is very aware of this kind of understanding of time. Um, and then you see that clashing with this arriving sense of time where um, time is money. Um, there is this idea of like regular work hours um, and the idea of a man hour. So like an hour, a man hour is a man hour, no matter what, no matter where it is, no matter who does it. So again, I think that that's a very familiar concept now, um, but it is... <laughs> Uh, it is actually very historically specific, like many of the other things we're used to. Hmm. Yeah. So you are suggesting that we've developed this way of looking at time that is really good for running a capitalist economy, uh, thinking about work hours and, you know, just thinking of that as another input to put into the machine of production uh, and you're also suggesting in the book that this way of thinking about time has kind of invaded other aspects of our life. It's not just in the workplace. It's uh, it's this whole frame that we are putting around uh, every moment of our life. Ex expand on what you mean and, and how this perspective or how this understanding of time is coloring our lives. Yeah, that was actually, uh, I mean, it was, it was, I I want to say fun. It was a morbidly fascinating thing to look into. Um, <laughs> there is this transition that I make between the first chapter, which is about that more straightforwardly industrial sense of time, and then the second chapter where, it, you know, I'm sort of asking what happens when you inter completely internalize that language. And one of the fav my favorite things that I came across was this book that really helped me make that transition called Increasing Personal Efficiency. It's from the 1920s, and it was written by someone who was very enamored with um, Frederick Taylor, who is known for developing a lot of these very highly efficient factory processes. So he's admire, an admirer of Taylor and wants to sort of tailorize your life or um, the, even the way you think, you know? So he keeps asking these questions like, are you thinking in the most efficient way possible? There's speed reading tests in the book. Um, and it's just this kind of like farcical obsession with efficiency. Um, hmm. And it's funny to read now, but it's also very clear a lot of that language is, would still be very familiar to anyone. Like we still, that's still very much in the culture and you can almost map it exactly 
to something like Taylorism, where now it's just that you are the factory manager and the factory worker, and you're the one telling yourself to work faster. Speaking with Jenny O'Dell about her new book, Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. So just to maybe relate this to my own personal experience, make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm 100% following along, you know, so I have definitely had the experience of being at the end of a long day and having done a lot of work and then looking off into the sunset and being like, man, that is a beautiful sunset. And then having this creeping feeling entering my mind that have I been looking at the sunset too long? Should I be, should I be, is this, is this like the amount of time I'm allowed to look at a sunset today? Should I be doing something else at this point? Um, is that, is that the kind of feeling that you're trying to uh, address in your book that like every moment is subject to this, um, this question and this scrutiny of, uh, am I uh, producing enough? Am I efficienting enough in this moment? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. I, I do think that it was important for me to make a distinction between uh, someone who has that feeling, which I have also definitely had. I can relate to that experience. Um, <laughs> someone who feels like they don't have time um, versus someone who actually concretely has very little control over their time. Um, for example, someone who works multiple jobs or works at a job that's very um, highly surveilled, right? Like a there are a lot of jobs that where tasks are still really minutely t- uh, timed, like a UPS driver, Amazon warehouse worker, right? Like there are all these interfaces that are uh, kind of just like the modern day version of Taylorism in the factory. So I do think, yeah, it, it, for me, it was important to make uh, a distinction between those two different kinds of experiences, the person who feels like they have no time and the person who really, really does not have control over their time, but also show that those experiences do have common roots in that rhetoric of time being money. All right, going to pick up on some of those thoughts in just a second. Real quick, for anybody just joining us, this is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. We've all heard the phrase, time is money, but today's guest disagrees. She says, in fact, it's so much more. That guest is Jenny O'Dell, and her new book is Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. And that phrase, I guess we can pick up on that, uh, time is money, it comes up uh, again and again throughout the book. Uh, And you really take uh, objection to uh, this phrase, time is money. And I think in some ways also connect it to uh, these uh, historical, historically developed ways that we have to look at time. And it it all gets, I think, very difficult to... um, perhaps unwind some of this, because time is just such a fundamental part of all of our experiences, uh, unwinding this uh, this cultural approach that we have to it after all these many years uh, can be quite difficult. Um, so you uh, take the time to go back and look at step by step how a lot of things uh, these things developed. And uh, I think one of the interesting things that you pointed out is that uh, a lot of other cultures really don't have the same sort of time instrumentation uh, that was developed in uh, Europe. Uh, talk a little bit about how uh, other cultures have approached the question of keeping track of time. Yeah, I I think, um, I mean, there's, I, I think a lot of time and time reckoning as being very similar to language. Um, so what I was saying hmm. earlier about those kinds of clashes that you saw um, between colonists and, and Native people uh, could be understood as a uh, language barrier, right? Like there are instances where mm-hmm. the idea of a Sabbath punctuated, you know, week with regular hours would not have extended further than the audible range of a mission bell. Um, 
And, uh, and so, you know, I think what I sort of came to, to realize over, you know, the course of researching the stuff is that the, the idea of time as money is actually sort of the exotic species of, or the exotic language of time. Everything else around it feels much more intuitive um, and much more based on what I would describe as timing rather than time, like time as a material that you buy and sell, right? So um, there are, you know, many languages or many cultures where, you know, there are considered to be more than four seasons, for example, um, and they might be called or named after things that happen in that season, right? Like things that flower in that season, things that you're supposed to do in that season. Um, and there's kind of this understanding that um, there is a right, that there is a window of opportunity to do something, right? That might be very important. Again, gardeners know this very well, <laughs> um, that time is is not yeah. actually uniform and that, you uh, you know, one process will happen, it will set off another process. Um, and as you said, it's, it is, it does on what the one hand seem difficult to access a sense of time outside of time being money. But on the other hand, I find that it can also be quite intuitive. Like you can just tell someone, right? Like either look outside or look at your own body, right? Like either in either direction, you can see the idea of time as stages, um, and as something different happening each moment, like we have circadian rhythms, uh, there are things like illness, pregnancy, um, and then, you know, obviously there is in the Bay Area, not quite four seasons, but there are definitely, you know, again, unfolding processes that happen in a recognizable order that sort of tell you where you are in the year. So I really, I, I mean, of course, it's easier to observe those kinds of things in some situations than others or in some places than others. But I do think it is something that it's it's intuitive, even if it's sort of buried under the daily experience of time having to feel like money. Well, I think that that was an interesting thing for me that you pointed out, which is that our, our felt sense of day-to-day -day experience you know, we, we, we feel the rhythm of the morning, we feel the rhythm of the afternoon, we, we, we feel moment to moment, um, that, that sort of overlay of also it is 3.03 PM, uh, on such and such a date that, that comes later that, that, I mean, it's something that we've learned and it's become so ingrained in us that it feels natural, but really that's, that's an overlay that we've placed over this experience that's, um, already happening. Um, and I, I feel like this all maybe touches on another, point that you make in the book, uh, with, uh, another phrase that you uh, take exception to, the idea that um, everyone has 24 hours in the day. And, uh, you know, if, if everyone has 24 hours in the day and you can uh, uh, use those 24 hours however you like, there's actually a, a lot more that can be accomplished than uh, most people realize. Uh, what, where is that phrase going wrong? I think that's actually a perfect example of that translation of the idea of industrial time into personal time. Um, you know, it's, if you examine the language of it, right, it's like, it's something that you have, right? I have 24 hours in a day and then it's, and it's quantitative. So it's 24, right? Um, and it really doesn't hold up very well if you think about it for any amount of time, right? It's like, okay, well, where are those hours happening? What do you have access to in those times? Like what, what, <laughs> where do you work? Whose clock are you on? What, what, how much power do you have in a hierarchy? Right. Like, um, it very quickly kind of falls apart, but I think the real harm that it does besides just not really being realistic to how we psychologically experience time is that it, it, it's sort of the corollary to a very 
specific individualist way of thinking in which uh, we all live in a zero sum game. And if I have more of something, i.e. time, you have less. Right. Um, and so in that scenario or in that way of thinking, the only way for me to get more time is for me to more efficiently use it the way that a factory manager would more efficiently use the labor time of their workers versus me maybe linking up with others in some kind of um, collective agreement in which we do something together that liberates the time for everyone who's involved in that. And a really simple example of that for me was when I was talking to a woman who is the admin for a Facebook group for working moms. And we were talking about that kind of time management advice that tells you to just kind of be more efficient with your time. And she was saying how as a working mother, she was very dissatisfied with that advice because it just didn't really address these other structural realities of her life. And then she's sort of mentioned offhand that she thought it might be a better idea to get six other moms together. And each night of the week, they would make dinner for everyone else in the group. And, and I think, again, that was like very intuitive for her. Like, oh, you know, if you are in a situation where you don't have as much power, in general or over your time, like one of the only things that makes sense to do is to try to build power with others in order to change the way that time feels or your relationship to time in that context, right? So it, it allows you to move beyond that idea of I have my hours in my bank and you have your hours in your bank and all we can do is exchange them on the market. Um, but there are just so many other ways that we could coordinate our actions in time. Hmm. And you kind of find as the opposite of that more communalistic, more expansive sense of growing time together, you find uh, as the opposite to that in a lot of ways being a hustle culture, this idea that I as the individual can maximize my hours in the day and get myself ahead to uh, as, as much as uh, humanly possible. Talk a little bit about your uh, thoughts on hustle culture and how it is a product of this culture uh, and this perspective that we've developed on time. Yeah, it's, you know, one thing I will say is I do, I have to respect how seductive it is because mm. I think a lot of people feel not, not in control, right? Like probably the majority of people right now, right? Um, and if you feel that you aren't in control and you don't have power resources and something comes along and promises you that you could actually have some amount of control in your life and you could improve your life. Like, you know, who's going to say no to that? And so I just, I, I understand the appeal. And I also, you know, I think there's nothing necessarily wrong with someone who, you know, uh, sets a goal and works at it really hard. And that's a source of meaning for them. Like, I, you know, I, we, we all, we all need that, right? Like we all need a sense of- I mean, of, you just wrote two books in the past couple of years. So you're yeah, not somebody yeah. without goals. Yeah, no, right, right. Um, but so I think there's not, there's nothing de facto sort of wrong with, with the, the idea of like the hustle, let's say, right? Um, but I, but I think hustle culture, um, as you mentioned, is sort of, it's a different thing. And I think it's, um, again, I think it, you know, similar to what I was saying earlier, it can become it can become a kind of dead end where you I I just I suspect that there are situations in which what we really want is a sense of meaning and purpose and connection. And it doesn't often itself like offer those things. And it I think it can actually close the door to those things. I, you know, I I taught at Stanford for many years. Uh, I taught art there and I, 
I remember observing the sort of competitive atmosphere that my students were coming up in and that I, I frankly remember as a student um, and how sometimes that seemed to threaten to take the joy out of learning, which, you know, learning is something that can be, hmm. it can be collective and individual at the same time, I think, in the best case scenario, like you can reach greater heights together um, and you can get excited about what you're learning with others and your excitement can contribute to this overall whole in a way that isn't a zero sum game. You actually get something that's greater than the sum of its parts, right? Um, and so I think that sometimes there's there's something about hustle culture that to me feels very isolating, um, competitive and isolating. And it sort of, um, I it could ironically prevent you from finding the thing that you're looking for, which might be that that sense of uh, of meaning and connection to others and and being surprised, right? Like learning something that you didn't think you could learn. Um, you know, there's there's a version of it of hustle culture where you just kind of become more and more maybe what you already are. Mm. Real quick, just going to let anybody who might just be joining us know that this is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today we're asking the question, are there really not enough hours in the day? Or are we just demanding too much from the hours we've got? Our guest is Jenny O'Dell, an Oakland-based artist and the author of the new book, Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. All right, so if that is the mission statement, discovering a life beyond the clock, how do we go about doing that? Uh, we've talked a lot about some of the ways that modern culture might be going awry. We've talked a lot about uh, how some of these, uh, how some of our attitudes and how our, our concept of time maybe could be shifted a little bit. But in a practical sense, what are you saying that people should do? So I, this book is very similar to how to do nothing and that I, I don't actually really tell anyone to do anything, which it, I, I mm. recognize can be frustrating. Um, I, I do, I do sort of point out in the introduction that I think that, you know, change operates on many levels and some of it may feel quite abstract, right? Like language and how we think about things could feel very abstract. Um, the, and then they're on the other end of that spectrum, there are things like policy, right? And then somewhere in between, there's what people would call culture change, right? Like how, you know, how people do things or interact, but that's not necessarily, say, like codified into, into policy. Um, and I think all of those levels are important. I don't see them as being mutually exclusive. I don't think, you know, giving attention to one necessarily takes away from the other. And I think that actually pushing on all of those levers at the same time is something that I'm really interested in. So for that reason, in the introduction, I sort of mentioned that, you know, my background is as, as an artist, I think about ways of looking at things um, and like the language that we use when we talk about time or think about our own time, but that I see my book as just kind of one small piece of a larger kind of constellation that includes uh, work by people who are talking about things like, you know, the time tax, which Annie Lowry has written about, um, that would be the time tax refers to the amount of time that uh, low income people would have to spend going through government bureaucracy, filling out forms like this is time that could very easily be given back to people if things were designed differently. Um, there's also, you know, a lot of writing and research already about paid leave, um, you know, fair work week laws childcare, you know, just all of these uh, sort of policy level things that I think we have known for a long time need to change um, and are very different in other countries. 
um, it's we're, we're sort of not doing so great in that <laughs> compared to other countries in that regard. Um, hmm. So I think like and and then, you know, obviously like uh, organizing and sort of like unions and these larger, you know, larger than the individual structures that are that have the power to push back on how time is structured and what is expected of people with their time because so many times the struggles are over time right it's over like either how much you're getting paid for your time or being asked to work longer or having your lunch break shortened right it's it's often those issues are about time so i i guess uh that's just to say that i i think we actually have the answers already and i think part of what i'm trying to do is just keep the feeling alive or sort of give some voice to it that we we know that there's something about this idea of giving all your hours over to something that doesn't necessarily maybe feel meaningful while also having the sort of temporal structure of your day be manipulated by, you know, either an employer or some sort of structure that's outside of you and just acknowledging the pain of that and that it doesn't have to be that way. And that that has a history. Um, the reason time feels that way. Um, and my hope is that it would sort of continue to direct attention towards these actions that are already, you know, people are already sort of working on. Well, we have had so many paradigm shifting experiences as a society over the past few years, whether we're talking uh, about the experience of going through COVID, whether we're talking about, um, you know, just social unrest within the country or uh, wars outside of the country that have really captured a lot of attention. It, it's been a time uh, of tumult in so many ways. Do, do you feel like when it comes to rethinking the sorts of things that you're calling, saying should be rethought, do, do you feel like this is a fertile moment for that sort of thing? Um, I mean, I do. I I do think, especially after the pandemic, because that so much of the strangeness of that experience also had to do with time, you know, the sort of rhythms of time being upended. Um, and I think also just being very close to mortality in a lot of ways, I think, um, brought a lot of people to thinking about their time, their lifetime differently. But I would also say that I think a, a large part of the project of my book is trying to uncover the fact that any moment can be fertile. Um, like it's, it's kind of trying to, um, uh, address that or work against that feeling that I think we so often have of, uh, you know, not just on the day to day, but over um, a larger span, especially in thinking about climate change is like this, this feeling that time is on a linear timeline and it's headed toward sort of certain oblivion. Um, and that there's not, and, hmm. and if that's true, then it doesn't, really makes sense to think about your own actions in that time. You're just sort of living out your life, right? Either, again, either on the small scale, individual scale, or on the larger scale. And I think there's something about grasping onto this other sense of time where it is um, not so uniform, in which there are moments of opportunity, in which every moment is different. That is the version of time for me, at least personally, that allows me to imagine that I could do something unexpected in the future um, or that I could respond in some kind of creative and imaginative way to what is happening in that moment. And that to me, that is just like a very different way of thinking about the future um, and about time. And so like, so yes, it is a fertile moment. One would hope that that the fertility of the moment is recognized um, and that actually that could be just a sort of bigger part of the way we think about time in the future in general. 
Yeah, a lot of food for thought uh, in all of that. Um, we we ha- only have about a minute left, but uh, I, I do know, and we haven't really gotten into it all that much in this conversation, that uh, nature really plays uh, a big role in your own relationship with time. Just closing thoughts, um, br- bring nature into the mix uh, for us. What, how, how does the, uh, the, the natural world influence your thinking on time? Well, I think the natural world is just a very easy demonstration for us um, of time that is constantly changing and is not necessarily uniform. Um, One thing that I did during the pandemic was I pointed a camera, I put a camera on a tripod and pointed it out my window and took periodic photos Mm -hmm. of the sky and just being reminded that the clouds were arriving and leaving, um, that the sky actually looks different at any given moment. Um, I think that was a very important reminder for me during the pandemic when time felt very kind of stultifying. Yeah. So just a a reminder that the pace of change uh, can be different depending on your uh, frame of reference. Um, A lot of food for thought in this conversation. We are unfortunately out of time at this point, though. Uh, We're going to thank our guest. That once again is Jenny O'Dell, uh, Oakland-based artist and the author of the new book, Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. Jenny O'Dell, thanks so much. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe. Be well. We'll talk again next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.